It was a time of kings and wars, a time of nations and empires rising, falling, battling. God's chosen nation, Israel, had split into two kingdoms, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Their 300-year period of being ruled by kings was riddled mostly with wicked kings, and as go the leaders, so go the people. They weren't alone in their wickedness, rather they just took on the form of the nations around them. The Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Babylonians, all floundered in their fight for dominance for generations until in 605 B.C., one man, one king, rose to the top, conquering all the others, becoming the most powerful man in the world, the one who slaughtered thousands of enemy nations in his enemy nations, the one who was responsible for the destruction of Jerusalem, the burning of God's temple, and the exile and captivity of the Israelites, the man, Nebuchadnezzar, the absolute monarch of his Babylonian empire. And when we open to Daniel chapter 4, we find the last recorded history of this great king, Nebuchadnezzar, this king of kings, this absolute monarch's life. And we discover how he relates to God and how God relates to him, this powerful king. And we discover that God relates with you and me and everybody in this room in the exact same way. Every man, every woman, every child who by ourselves, our own estimation, are the kings, the absolute monarchs of our own lives. Yes, we're in Daniel chapter 4 today, and I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles with me there right now. Daniel chapter 4, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab the Bible in front of you and turn to page 740. This is the longest chapter in the book of Daniel, so it would be great to have the text open in front of you today if you can do that. There's sermon notes in the bulletin as well. Now, we've been in the first three chapters the last four weeks. Hasn't it been great? It's been a very good series, and I'm grateful for it. So as we come to chapter 4, we need to know that the events of this chapter are toward the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So Daniel is now around 50 years old. He and Nebuchadnezzar have been friends, have had this relationship for 30 years now. They've had this time of interacting and mutual respect for each other. One, a powerful pagan king, and the other, a strong man of faith in God, who from his youth has stood strong in his faith in God's sovereign control of the universe. He has not wavered in his faith in God's sovereign control of the universe, that God is the creator and he is in control of all creation, including all the affairs of mankind in each and every person's life. Neither man has wavered. Daniel has remained strong in the face of all kinds of hardships, and Nebuchadnezzar has remained a powerful and proud pagan king. Proud of his accomplishments, proud in his speech, and proud of the way he has dealt with people, Nebuchadnezzar is about to learn Proverbs 16, 18, the hard way, that pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. He's about to learn the hard way that you can be strutting like a king one day 
and living like an animal the next day. He's about to learn what we can avoid, the hard lesson that the Most High God is God and that we are not. We're going to learn four truths from Nebuchadnezzar today about God being God, God being sovereign over all things, and how we are not, and that that is a good thing. Four truths that we're going to learn today through chapter 4. So with your Bibles open, your sermon notes out, if you have them, here is the first truth that we learn from God's Word from Nebuchadnezzar himself. And if you weren't aware of this, Nebuchadnezzar is actually the author of Daniel chapter 4. He wrote this text that we're going to look at today. Now Daniel, his friend, many people think, probably helped him write this scripture. In the introduction to this, his story, he tells his story in chapter 4. And in the first three verses, the introduction to Nebuchadnezzar's telling you of his story, we learn our first lesson of the four. We learn how to honor God for leading us to repentance. So God leads him to repentance, and he honors God. He begins his account with these opening words. Nebuchadnezzar spoke these words after it was all over, after he learned this lesson. And when we learn from his opening, we learn how to honor God for leading us to repentance, because that's a good thing. So let's look at the verses. Verse 1, he begins, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. So this already doesn't sound like, who is this guy? This is like a State of the Union address here. If it was today, social media would be blowing up. What did King Nebuchadnezzar just say? This is crazy. Well, it gets even better. Verses 2 and 3. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders of the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. This does not sound like the Nebuchadnezzar of chapters 1, 2, and 3, and in 2 Kings and in Jeremiah that cuts people's heads off and throws teenagers into a fiery furnace. God has changed the supposed unchangeable. And he wants the world to know his testimony and his gratitude to God for leading him to repentance. What happened? What happened? There was a change in Nebuchadnezzar's life that we need to grasp. And it involves two key terms. And these are on your notes. And to introduce these key terms, I'm going to read a quote from C.S. Lewis from his book, Mere Christianity, which begins with the line, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free. One vice. And as I read the rest of this quote, see if you can figure out what that one vice is before he identifies it at the end. Here it goes. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes or hates when he sees it in someone else, of which hardly any people, except Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which, makes, which, uh, which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride. Pride's been called the chief cause of enmity and misery. It's the vice, C.S. Lewis says, and the Bible says, all of us have. It's the root cause of all other vices that you struggle with. Enmity between you and God. Enmity is 
animosity. You're at odds with, at conflict with other people. The chief cause of misery. Our spiritual enemies, the flesh, the devil, the world, all try to tap into our, na- our nature of pride. There's even a lot of pride in the Christian world. But Christians do have the answer to it through Christ. The virtue opposite to it in Christian morals, C.S. Lewis says, is called humility. Its opposite is humility. Humility looks at life differently. It says, all my life and all that I have and all that I am is a gift. And I'm grateful for it. I have what I have because God chose to entrust me with it. And if God gave me what I truly deserve, I'd be lost. And if anybody here today is saying, well, I don't struggle with pride, let me tell you something. That by the biblical diagnostic manual, that's the first sign of having pride, is saying, I don't struggle with pride. We all do. Now, Nebuchadnezzar wishes to honor God for what he did to lead him or to drive him Uh, to a repentant heart, a humbled heart, a heart that was sorry for his rebellion and pride. He was grateful. He wants to share this story. You see, over, over the last 30 years of Nebuchadnezzar watching Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and others, I'm sure, that were in the captivity, he was impressed by God, but he was not pressed to make a change in his own life. Okay, and we can be impressed by God and not pressed to change our hearts. But God can reach anyone and change them, even kings, even politicians, even you and me. So my question for you is, will he reach you in your place of pride today? So let's continue in the story. We are learning that God is God, that we are not, and that that's a good thing. We've seen Nebuchadnezzar's gratitude for God for leading him to repentance. And in verses 4 through 18, the second part of the story, we learn how God gets our attention. God gets our attention. He doesn't force you, but he gets our attention. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to tell you his own story to recount for us the second troubling dream that he received from God. The first was in chapter 2. Here was the second one. It starts in verse 4. He writes, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. So things were good for this prideful king. Really good. But when the, prob- the problem is that when things are good for, for us, prideful people don't look to God. There's one great quote that says this, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. It was time for God to hit Nebuchadnezzar right between the eyes and give him a dream that scared him. Verse 5, I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. This is strong language. I was afraid. So why was the most powerful man in the world, who had no enemies that could stand up to him, shaking and quivering and sweating in his own bed? He was the absolute monarch of all nations. Nobody was rising against him. He had this dream that scared him to death. He knew that this dream was different. He knew that this dream had implications for the future, and he was alarmed. So the most powerful man now is feeling powerless as he lay in bed. And when he gets up, as always, 
the first thing he does is call for his godless interpreters, magicians, to come and interpret the dream in verses 6 and 7. And once again, they cannot deliver. They were powerless. So once again, at that point, he goes to where he should have started all along, to the man of God. That's what he does in verse 8 and 9. At last, Daniel came in before me. It's like, at last, I finally resorted to calling in the man of God, calling in God. He who is named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Now, he's still a polytheist at this point. At this point, he has not turned his faith to the one true God. So he continues, I, and I told him the dream saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar knew the power that Daniel had, but he kept choosing to go to his other gods, his other people, his other solutions first until things got bad enough. But I want to ask, honestly, how many times do we do that? Most of the time. We try to figure things out on our own power. We try to turn to other things other than God first. And I want to say when we don't go to God first, we're essentially saying the same thing as Nebuchadnezzar did, that, oh, there's one God, but I have other gods that I'm going to turn to instead. But at last, Nebuchadnezzar finally relented, and he went to God. He called in Daniel, and starting in verse 10, he tells Daniel his dream. I looked for a picture that I could put on the screen of this dream, but all I saw was just big giant trees, and we can imagine that just fine in our heads. Okay, so as I read his dream, I want you to picture what what I'm reading in your head. He says, The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh, all humanity was fed from it. So Nebuchadnezzar is seeing a tree in his dream that's a lot like the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, that reached to the heavens, and its appearance was beautiful, and everyone was fed from it. And we learn through all of human history that societies always try to amass power for the purpose of taking care of ourselves, of everyone, without God. It's a testimony to our pride, and that's on a societal level and on an individual level. We all do this individually in the kingdoms of our own lives. Because here's the thing, the prideful heart of mankind, every single one of us, desires more than anything autonomy from God, independence from God, to be our own gods. This is pride. This is the vice that no one is without that leads to every other vice. But humility is ready to happen in this dream. In verse 13, he says, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher a holy one, came down from heaven. This is an angel. God uses angels a lot, just like he uses humans to do his will. He uses them frequently in the book of Daniel. 
This one entered with an ominous message. And I am going to show a picture here. This is a little bit early, but I want to show this image because this image comes up three times in the rest of the chapter. And I want you to see this in case you don't know what's coming in chapter 4. As you look at this image, here's where it begins with the angel's proclamation. Verses 14 through 16, as I read this, just imagine. So the angel proclaimed aloud and said, Chop down that tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump. Leave the stump of its roots in the earth. That's Nebuchadnezzar. Bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. Now, God's got Nebuchadnezzar's attention now with this image, with this proclamation from the angel, this frightening prophecy of what will happen to him. And in verse 17, the next verse, we see the key that unlocks the chapter and the key that unlocks the interpretation of this dream. Verse 17 The angel continues, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. And here's the purpose, to the end, for the purpose of, that the living may know that the most high God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. The purpose of this judgment is to teach Nebuchadnezzar and all of us that the living will know that the Most High God is sovereign. He is God. He rules the kingdom of all men, the kingdom of our own hearts, of our own lives. He is God, and we are not, and He will get our attention to teach us this. And I would guess that Nebuchadnezzar is figuring this out because he's frightened by it, but he still calls in Daniel says, interpret the dream for me, Daniel. We see that in verse 18. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Nebuchadnezzar knows that he doesn't need a yes man. He needs a truth man. He knows that he doesn't just need people to tell him what he wants to hear. He needs the truth. And people know this, especially if the absolute monarch is coming to this point. That's what people need. And God wants your attention right now, and hopefully he's getting it. Are you listening to him right now? And if you're listening, can you think of a time this week or this month or maybe this morning even where your pride has gotten the better of you? You might have mistreated someone. You might be trying to remain in control of a situation that you shouldn't be. You might have fallen into some of the other vices because you think you deserve it or nobody's going to get hurt. It's okay if I rebel against God. I'm going to do what I want. Whatever it is, you might need to be humbled before God. And God gets your attention and he's calling for it right now. The story continues, and we've learned so far that he wants our attention and that he gets it. 
And the next point, point three, that we learn in the story is how God then calls us to righteousness. Okay, he's getting your attention. He's calling us to righteousness. Here's how this story unfolds. He calls us to righteousness. But first, I don't know why, but I wanted to share something with you. Last fall, we did a sermon series on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Most of you remember that. It was great. The one thing, I'm not sure why, but that struck me the most, that really grabbed my attention, was the beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed, of course, remember, means happy and totally fulfilled, filled with joy. How? Those who hunger and thirst, they want more than anything else in the world, righteousness. For the right thing to happen in every situation, for the thing that's true, the thing that glorifies God the most, most beneficial, in every situation, when you hunger and thirst for that, want that more than anything else, that's the person who's blessed, who's fulfilled, who's happy. And so I set off to really desire that in every situation in life. What a great pursuit. And I want my kids to learn that and grow in that as well. And in the next part of our story, Nebuchadnezzar learns that God calls us to that very thing. And he learned it through Daniel being obedient to that very thing, doing a hard thing. Daniel had a tough situation here. He knew the interpretation of this dream, and he knew that it meant some very hard things ahead for Nebuchadnezzar. Let's see what happens in the text. Verse 19, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a little while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, you know, this is, he wishes him well here. My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Okay, again, Daniel is torn between two things that we're often torn by. Between compassion for someone that we love and conviction for righteousness, to do the right thing, to tell the truth. And we can't let compassion replace conviction to do the right thing. This is what Ephesians 4.15 calls speaking the truth in love. It's a vital balance. So Daniel does not stutter or stammer or hesitate, but he gives the truth directly to Nebuchadnezzar. It's not what he wants to hear, but it's what he needs to hear, the truth. Nebuchadnezzar, you are that tree. Verses 24 and 25, Daniel says, This is the interpretation, O king, it is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to all whom he will. Daniel again says, God is God and you are not. Now realize this before it's too late. But then he interprets the rest of the dream. Verses 26 and 27. He says, and as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. That's Nebuchadnezzar and the stump was to be left. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. From the time that you repent, it will be restored. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. 
that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. He's imploring him, repent of your sins, break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Break off your iniquities by showing mercy. Make a change here. That's what repentance is. Replace pride with holiness, mercy, justice, and what all those come from? Humility before God. Daniel does what God calls him to do to stand strong in his faith and to call others to do what is right. And then the text stops. God doesn't tell us how Nebuchadnezzar responded to Daniel that day. Instead, the text next jumps ahead 12 months. I think we learn from this. We get the picture that God gives the warning to us. He gets our attention. He calls us to righteousness. And then in his, ever, and in his grace, he waits and is patient for us to respond. Praise God for his grace and his patience, right? He sometimes delays his judgment waiting for us to come around. So what happened after those 12 months of God waiting? Well, Daniel obeyed, but Nebuchadnezzar did not. And now we learn a vitally important lesson for our lives today. We learn how God humbles us and lifts us up. Okay? He humbles us and he lifts us up. What a good God. By God's grace, when we are arrogant and prideful, he brings us down. And when we are humble, he lifts us up. This is great. We see what happens next in a very short statement in verse 28. All this came to pass on Nebuchadnezzar. Feel the weight of that statement. Daniel had urged Nebuchadnezzar to repent from his pride and the sinful things that it was causing. God waited. He did not. And all this came to pass upon King Nebuchadnezzar. God is bringing to bear what he said would happen. Here's the story in verses 29 through 33. At the end of 12 months, 12 months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Uh-oh. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, until you know. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't let go of his pride. And out of God's grace... He humbled him for it. He brought him low. And we better not forget that everything that we are and everything that we have comes from God. It's a gift that he should have glory for. It's not owed to us. It's a gift. And Nebuchadnezzar rejected that 
Now he was taught the hard way. He was stricken by God for the promised term of seven years with the what we believe could be the rare mental disorder that still exists today. Scientists have a name for it. It's called Insania zoanthropica, where one thinks of themselves as animals. Boanthropy is when one specifically thinks of themselves as a cow or an ox. It's rare, but it still happens. And God inflicted this on Nebuchadnezzar for seven years. He humbled this proud man as low as you can go. Isaiah 2.17 says, The pride of mankind will be brought low, and human loftiness will be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. And that applies to you and me as much as it does Nebuchadnezzar. But we're going to see, even in this story, that this is an act of grace. God bringing us low is an act of his grace. Because as James 4, 6, and 10 say, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Listen to this. Learn that when you are humbled, when you're humbled by God and he has your attention, it's not time to keep running from God, to keep rebelling from God. It's the time to humble yourselves before God and look to him and pray to him and seek him. He will lift you up. That is sweet is great there's only one way to be healed from pride and all of its manifestations that have you in its grasp that is that God has to do it you know the answer look to him in humility he will lift you up and he did it to King Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar looked up and he was healed from his pride verse 34 At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. It worked. Hey, this works. Amen? It works. It worked in the most powerful man's life. I lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. It worked. And then this king, this pagan king, who's now trusting the Most High God in humility, recites a poem of praise in the next two verses that we're actually going to look at in our communion time in just a few moments. But then look what happens. The stump of the tree in the dream that God instructed to leave alone because it would return, it returned. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled, but he responded to God. He responded to God, and God lifts him up. And here's what happens. Verses 36 and 37. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of, and for the glory of my own king, my majesty and splendor returned to me. Things were returning. My counselors and lords sought me. Whether he was out in the, in the wilderness, or I think pro- he was still their king, I think he was probably cha- bound, just like the stump was in the dream, and in the courtyard eating grass like an animal. And after seven years, my counselors and my lords sought me again, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. See how his attitude has totally changed? He's thankful for this all as a gift. He's not taking credit for it. What a difference. What a change. In the last verse, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven 
for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, and no one can say this more authoritatively than Nebuchadnezzar, who walked in pride and has changed and is happy for it. All those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I'm going to ask you today, how are you struggling with pride? I'm not asking you if you're struggling with pride. I already know the answer to that. So think, how are you struggling with pride right now? There's lots of ways. And I want to challenge you with a couple next steps to make this message yours. Say this today. You've got this, God. Next step number one, I will give God, I will give you my pride, my heart, and my life. What is it that you're not letting go? What is this control or this vice or this thing or this thing in your relationships that you're not letting go? Or maybe it's your worry. If you're a believer, all that's been nailed to the cross. What are you not letting go? Maybe it's forgiveness. Rebelliousness of all kinds of other vices in your life. You're just not letting go. Kids in school, maybe it's what other people think. It's just so important to you that you're not going to follow Christ. I want to encourage you to follow the example of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And now King Nebuchadnezzar. Who cares what other people think other than God? And he will lift you up. He will. He will meet you right there in the halls of school. So trust him today in all these things. If you haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior, this is where it all begins. This is the ultimate act of humility. But blessed are those who are poor in spirit, humble, who come before the Lord, and he lifts you up for a salvation and eternal life and freedom from the masters that you have in your life right now, the masters of worry and whatever else. And when he lifts us up, Life isn't over. We still have our parts to play in life. And so number two is, I will humbly now learn about God and serve God. Of course, serving is the international language of Christianity. We serve. We love in any language. But I want to start with learning because that's been a key theme, these things that we have to learn. And the New Testament writers often say, grow in the knowledge of God. That's a command. Because the more we grow in knowledge, the more we study God's word and are around his people, the more we understand, the more we know what God wants and who he is, and that changes our lives. So I want to just bring some quick applications, some things that are going on right now in the church in Lake City's life uh, that you can apply this right now. Consider these things. Um, ways to learn more about God coming up. Of course, this is in addition to all the small groups and Bible studies that are always ongoing that you can always join. There's three things that are coming up very soon, though. The Bible Reframed Seminar. That's this Tuesday night, right back here in this room at 6.30. It's a two-hour seminar that you'll walk away with a, with a great grasp of how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament and how it all relates to our lives and our current situations right now. It's a very empowering seminar for everybody. So I'd encourage you to come back here Tuesday night, 6.30. And then on March 16th is the SHAPE class. That's a four-hour seminar. It's one of the most exciting things that we do. Um, great Bible study and self-assessment uh, to, to figure out why God made you the way he did uh, for his purposes. It's great. For those, if you need child care, please RSVP on your communi communication card or contact in the office, especially with child care. And then man camp. Man, I know what's in store 
for man camp. And it's going to be great. And man, you probably need this in your life right now. I'm just guessing. We all do. Uh, so sign up for that. And then, serving God, we have a couple needs right now in the course of a church life. Occasionally, there's a great need. And we do have a great need with children's workers right now. If that's something that you can do, and youth leaders, we are a growing church. We have so many kids, over 100 teenagers, um, that come and, and need to be discipled and led. So those are some current needs in our church right now. A lot more to apply, but I wanted to get those out there. Let's pray, and then we're going to transition to communion. <clears throat> oh, Lord, we, uh, we, we recited a, a wonderful psalm. My help comes from the Lord because everything comes from the Lord. My life, talents, treasures, opportunities. Lord, I pray if, if anybody's not humbly acknowledging that, as I don't from time to time throughout the day, that you will indeed, by your grace, humble us. We thank you for your patience. We pray that we respond by seeking righteousness, by glorifying you, and by serving you with it. Lord, I pray you'll do your great work, complete the work that you've started in each and every person in this room today. And now, we're going to celebrate the source of the power that we have to do it. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.